So Mark, actually, Mark, I'm going to put you on full screen here as a speaker. There we are, so we can all see you. And um, let's get started. So Mark Yaxley. Mark Yaxley, you're the managing partner, one of three managing partners at SWP, Strategic Wealth Preservation, based in the Caymans. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today or chat with all of us actually today. Um, we've got lots of questions. And um, so let me just launch right in uh, because you, your company has been in the news and Signature Bank has been in the news. How did SWP navigate the collapse of Signature Bank? And how did SWP even anticipate a problem? Because you managed to avoid. Right. Well, first of all, hello, everybody. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. I'm sitting here in the Cayman Islands. Um, usually I live, I spend half of my time at least uh, back home in British Columbia, Canada, where I, I reside with my wife, but I'm currently down in Cayman. Uh, there's a lot of uh, activity here, as you can imagine, lately with everything happening in the gold space. Uh, so to answer your first question, yeah, um, we started monitoring, well, I mean, look, first of all, our banking relationships are very important, obviously, to, to the business. We, we, we receive and send, you know, a significant amount of money through uh, banks every day because of what we do for a living. Um, and so we obviously take that very seriously to begin with. But what triggered us to start monitoring the situation more closely was the collapse of FTX. Uh, back in late 2022, uh, when our friend Sam Bankman-Fried uh, defrauded, you know, people for $30 billion, basically that started a domino effect through the banking system that took uh, several months to play out. Um, obviously, there was banks in particular that uh, were holding or dealing with uh, crypto exchanges or uh, companies that were dealing in cryptocurrencies were most impacted. And we knew... Um, from conversations with Signature Bank that they did have some exposure to cryptocurrency. They were known as kind of a crypto-friendly bank, which at the time when we signed up with them back in 2018 was a selling point for us. You know, we thought, oh, that's great. These guys are open-minded. They're flexible. We accept crypto. This makes sense. Um, and so that's when we started monitoring them closely. And then as things progressed uh, in early March and we saw uh, Silicon Bank fail, I believe it was on a Wednesday, Tuesday or Wednesday, we huddled together and said, okay, there's, you know, there's a chance that that things could be imminent. And so at that point, uh, we had already moved a significant amount of the money that we were holding uh, for the company and uh, on behalf of clients out of Signature Bank before that. But at that point, we withdrew all remaining funds. And so we were a few days ahead of, uh, of Signature Bank being um, shut down by regulators, uh, effectively. And so by the time that that news hit on a Sunday, uh, I believe it was uh, the 12th of March or the 11th of March, uh, we had already moved all of the monies out of that bank into our Cayman Islands bank as a temporary measure, basically, until the dust settled. Uh, the dust settled. Mm -hmm. So it, it appears that Flagstar has purchased Signature Bank. Mm -hmm. uh, can you describe, I know you're not a banking expert, that's not your industry, but um, can you describe Flagstar the best that you know about them um, as a new partner? Right. So I'll start by saying that we were in contact with Signature Bank. So we know the people there. We, 
you know, we we have a designated account representative. Uh, there's two people basically that manage our account and we speak to them almost daily. Uh, one of them is a senior manager at Signature Bank and one of them is, is basically uh, an administrative person uh, that processes bank wires and things like that. So we'll, we were in contact with them throughout, you know, when we, we heard the news, basically we called them on Monday morning to see how they were doing, you know, on a personal level, these people's jobs are at risk. You know, these are people that we had come to know. So we care. And uh, they told us, yeah, you know, we were waiting on news ourselves. And then I think by 11 o'clock uh, that morning or, or, or the next day, uh, you know, the news broke that they had been acquired or were being acquired by Flagstar Bank. Um, oh, no, sorry. The first, sorry, I apologize. The first news was that the, uh, the regulators had promised that all deposits would be protected. Sorry, that was the first news that broke. So on Sunday night, the news breaks and says, you know, signature has been uh, taken over by regulators. On Monday, regulators promise everybody your deposits are safe. The bank will continue to function. And they told us at that point what they thought was happening. Our contacts at Signature said the bank is most likely going to be acquired. And it took about a week from the time the regulators took over the bank to Flagstar making the acquisition. I, I believe it was the following Sunday. Uh, the, the news broke that Flagstar Bank had acquired Signature. So during that time, we were still in touch with our people at Signature. And when Flagstar acquired Signature, they acquired it minus the crypto branch of that bank. They acquired the bank as is. So the staff that we deal with are still employed and they still are our account managers. And so there's a nice continuity continuity there between, you know, Signature Bank now becoming Flagstar Bank. Um, to, at this point in time, we have not yet spoken to Flagstar directly. We have not been contacted by Flagstar directly. We're still speaking with our contacts at Signature Bank. And they're still branded as Signature Bank. If you go to their website, it still says Signature. If you send them a bank wire, it still says Signature. So there's going to be a transition period, basically, where, you know, Signature Bank, as we knew it, becomes Flagstar Bank. And at that point, I'm, I'm assuming that uh, we'll get to know the people at Flagstar better. But obviously, immediately, what we did is we had our CFO do a deep dive on Flagstar and to make sure that, uh, that uh, the bank was solid. But he came back and said, look, financially speaking, the bank looks good on paper. And more importantly, the regulators would not have allowed Flagstar Bank to acquire Signature Bank during a banking crisis had it not been in a good financial position to do so. So the last thing the regulators would have allowed is for a bank that's troubled to take on another troubled bank because it would only worsen the situation. So he said, in his professional opinion, this is our CFO speaking, everything looks very solid. And the fact that the regulators have permitted this acquisition is a very good sign. Um, so that's where we are with uh, with with uh, Signature and Flagstar at the moment. Okay, one uh, one quick question uh, is that you haven't chosen to work with one of the banks in the U.S. that are considered to be those too good to fail in that too good to fail class. <clears throat> uh, any reason? Well. Too big to fail. Um, we have in the past worked with HSBC Bank in the U.S. Um, and I've in my career, I've seen precious metals dealers work with, you know, large Canadian banks, large American banks. And I can tell you that the experience is not always more positive when working with a large bank. Um, but I will say that the reality of the situation is when you're a, a gold dealer based in the Cayman Islands, 
your selection of banking partners is going to be limited for a variety of reasons. You know, they bankers in general don't understand what gold dealers, you know, the purpose that we serve, or they don't want to understand the purpose that we serve in the in the, the bigger picture. Um, and uh, their compliance people are not particularly fond of gold dealers and the Cayman Islands in general. Whether that be warranted or not is uh, another discussion, but um, we have been able to always have a bank in the U.S. Uh, signature was was that choice and, and a very good choice for us for, for many years. Um, so, yeah, it's a shorter list, Marianne, uh, mm -hmm. and, and we're always seeking kind of the best partner available to us. And we're currently, I should mention to you, we are currently seeking to add a second bank in the U.S. and a, a second bank in the Cayman Islands as well in order to, if a situation like this does happen again, we have even more options to protect the company and client assets, um, of course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, th the fact that you might be having difficulty in finding a banking partner makes sense because I know when I was a broker, institutional investors were not allowed to buy gold bullion. It was mm -hmm. considered a, a vote against um, the Federal Reserve. Or and against you know the, the printing money, so it, it I, there is definitely a resistance against you know gold, and uh, so I can imagine that uh, banks may not want to cooperate with you, even though banks like HSBC are well known to be money laundering banks internationally. So it's ironic that a company like HSBC is not a natural partner for you guys. Um, because they're it's very ironic in yeah. fact um when whenever we get a call from a compliance department of one of our banks we know that they have a job to do and we understand that and you know i can appreciate the compliance and regulations are important but uh i do find it ironic that the banks tend to look down at us even though we're a debt-free very well-managed company that has uh done nothing you know in the in in our in the entire existence we've had we've never had a single lawsuit We've never had a single loss. Um, we we are audited by uh, Grant Thornton. Um, you know, we do everything a respectable company in our position would do, and yet we're scrutinized basically because we're a gold dealer and we're in the Cayman Islands. And and I I can understand that on paper, but if if they ever took you know we invite them to our vault, we invite them to take as close a look at us as they like, but often with compliance people, you know, they sit in an office far, far away and make decisions without ever getting to know the actual customers that they're dealing with. So, yeah, you know, it's a reality that we face, but we've managed to always overcome it. And I don't see that changing uh, anytime soon. Yeah. Well, the hypocrisy here is that most <clears throat> of the C-suite of banks and most elite in power are all investing in gold, but they're doing very, doing so very discreetly, very quietly. And probably the C-suite of most of the major banks have accounts with the likes of you. And yet their clients are not supposed to be dealing with you, the commoners. So I think this is a phenomenon that we're really seeing accentuated now um, because I can't really think of a better asset group, you know, precious metals and land, big land, uh, farmland, I think are the two asset classes that are my personal favorite. So, um, well, when you're choosing a banking partner, what's the criterion? And is crypto part of the decision? Because at some point you did offer crypto payments for gold, but how do you choose a, a banking partner? We still do offer crypto as payment. We've not deviated from that. We've, um, 
we've uh, we've continued uh, to, along that path because we believe that it is important to have alternative payment methods for our clients. Um, but obviously, I mean, you know, our CFO has a our CFO comes from a Swiss bank, so this is someone who understands you know what he's looking for in terms of uh, of evaluating a bank's financials. Obviously, he's the first person uh, to engage with any potential banking partners and to uh, to scour over their financial uh, statements. Uh, most of that information is available publicly. If you're interested, you know, if it's a publicly traded company, you can go even on Wikipedia these days. It's amazing. If you Wikipedia Flagstar, you'll see you'll find a lot of information about the bank's public. So I encourage you to do so. But obviously, once that box is checked and we feel that the bank is in a financial position that is stable. It's things like service reputation and, and their abilities to work with us, more importantly, because we can't hide who we are. We don't hide the fact that we accept cryptocurrency as payment. And then we settle in cryptocurrency as well. So, you know, again, as I alluded to earlier, that does shorten the list of banks, but that's a reality that any gold dealer that I've ever spoken to faces. I remember at Kitco when I was working there, they lost their key banking partner in the US. I, rem I know more recently speaking to dealers in Canada who are being cut out by their banks that have, they've banked with for 30 or 40 years. So it's a reality that that gold dealers, what it seems like will always, uh, but the criteria would be more for us is, is their ability to, uh, to, to service our business type and obviously our clients, which we feel actually Signature has done a good job and we're hopeful that Flagstar will do a good job as well. Right. So do you mind kind of spelling out who are your current banking partners in the U.S., Caymans, and elsewhere? Just so we have, yeah, so we, we have who, yeah, who, what sure. are our options? So, so I'll actually pop these in the chat just so that, you, you know, anyone who's taking notes can. Um, <clears throat> so there's, there's two banking partners currently. We're looking to add two more, as I said. We bank with Signature slash Flagstar now. Uh, in the United States and Proven Bank in the Cayman Islands. Those are the two banks that we use right now. And uh, we actually have uh, already submitted all the documentation to add a third bank uh, in the Cayman Islands called NCB, um, which will be our second. I'll put that in there as well, second Cayman Bank. And the U.S. bank is going to take, the second U.S. bank will take longer. That's going to be a longer due diligence process, but we're currently speaking to three or four financial institutions there. So uh, Okay. Uh, all right. Um, so what are the challenges that you're observing with Canadians moving funds into uh, SWP? Because we are, I'm hearing a lot of um, institutions that are making our lives very difficult. Mm. What are you, what, what are the challenges that you're observing? And then my next question will be, how do we resolve this? Yeah, there, I think there's kind of two two uh, main issues right now that Canadians in particular are finding with Canadian banks. And I, you know, I'm Canadian, so I sympathize. Um, number one is, is systematic. So following the enactment of uh, the Emergency Act, uh, this goes back now with February, 2022 with uh, uh, Justin Trudeau's enactment of that act. Following that single event, Canadian banks became a lot more difficult to deal with. And my theory is, and I've heard this from banking sources in Canada, that there was, there was a small run on the banks following that 
those actions by the Canadian government. Actually, there was a lot of Canadians that moved money out of Canada following the, that uh, that act. And then afterwards, what happened is Canadian banks started to really hold their clients' money a lot more tightly. So what happens is when you go to the bank to pay SWP, they're not looking to help you so much as they're looking to find ways not for you not to send that money out of the bank. And so they're questioning, you know, I, I've heard all ridiculous things, you know, first of all, you know, most people come with an invoice and the bank wire instructions, which it is well within your right to send your money wherever you like, first of all, but if you have an invoice for a legitimate purchase from a legitimate company into an asset, you know, that is gold, there should be nobody questioning you on what you're doing, first of all, that's from the outside. But what's happening is that they're questioning the clients. They're trying to uh, throw mud at SWP for some reason, saying, oh, they're an illegitimate company. They're in the Cayman Islands. How this, this is fraud. And it couldn't be further from the truth. We've been in business since 2014. We serviced thousands of clients all over the world. We hold almost a billion dollars worth of precious metals in physical form inside of vaults. I mean, we're very good at what we do. And yet these banks have the nerve to, to say that we're doing something wrong and that their clients are doing something wrong. Um, which is which is really sad. So that's part of it. It's more of a systemic issue with Canadian banks right now that they're really trying to to scare their clients into not doing something because they want to hold your money. And what I say to the client is, do you want to keep your money in a place like that? You know, if that's how banks are going to act, why would you ever want to keep your money with that bank? The second part of it is, uh, I hate to say, it's just incompetence on behalf of the bank staff. Sometimes you go to the bank and the person isn't very well trained and you say, I'd like to send a bank wire. Now, 20, 30 years ago, sending bank wires was very, very common. Everybody used bank wires to transfer money. That's how it was done. These days, less common to send bank wires, even though it's only to the United States. And uh, and sometimes the person just doesn't know how to do it or they're, they're, they're just kind of incompetent. And so it becomes an issue and a little bit frustrating for the person, but generally that escalates to a manager who's able to put the bank wire through. Um, but truth be told, none of this should be happening. Uh, sending a bank wire from a Canadian bank to a U.S. bank is very, very simple. It happens hundreds of thousands of times a day. I mean, money gets wired all over the, the world all the time in much larger amounts than what our clients are sending us. And uh, and it just seems that the banks, uh, once again, are making this more difficult than they should be, to be honest. So how can... Uh, people best navigate this institutional resistance. Um, you know, there, there, some of our company, our com- our, some of my clients work with a company called Knightsbridge to do the conversion from Canadian dollars to US dollars and even have asked them to wire the money directly to you. And because their bank is, re- you know, resisting, but Knightsbridge is also saying no. So how are we to navigate this? Because this is the biggest obstacle that Canadians have right now is getting money into your account. I mean, I can't speak on behalf of Knightsbridge. And um, it's unfortunate that they've made a, that's a business decision that they've Mm -hmm. made, uh, probably based on some sort of, uh, they'd probably point the finger at their compliance department. But at the end of the day, again, the question is, why are you using a company that's not allowing you to freely send your money where you'd like? Now, your alternative is probably to take the money into your bank account and then out of your bank account to Signature Bank mm-hmm. if Knightsbridge is refusing to do this. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I can't speak on their behalf and tell you why they're doing it. I can't, you know, there's no justification ultimately. But uh, what we what we say to, to our clients is, first of all, go into the situation with 
control. Don't, don't, don't allow the bank to control you. You are the customer. It is your money. You pay tax on this money, presumably. Um, you have to go into the bank with the mindset of this is going to happen. I have the right for this to happen because it's my money and I'm telling you where it's going. It's not, let's not have a debate about that. This is going to happen. So how are you going to facilitate this happening for me? So I'd say entering the conversation with that frame of mind is important because some people get very nervous and you know, they get talked out of things. They, they second guess things. But what we tell our clients is you have nothing to second guess. You wouldn't be buying gold if you didn't believe in it. And you wouldn't be buying it from us if Marianne or someone else hadn't done the homework or you haven't done your own homework in order to be certain that the company that you're dealing with is legitimate and, and you're going to be able to purchase what you're looking to purchase. Um, the second thing is, is to remind the bank, and Marianne, you touched on this earlier, um, and I'm seeing some people in the chat say they haven't had issues and for others, they have had issues. So I know it depends on the financial institution and it can depend on your branch, actually. Um, but gold is a very legitimate investment. So if there's any question of what you're purchasing, you know, they'll look at the invoice and it gives a breakdown of exactly what you're buying. If the bank has a problem with what products you're buying, again, legally, is that a reason for them not to release your funds because they don't agree with your investment choice? And the only reason they don't agree is because they've been taught not to agree with it. So just, again, it's a little bit of a mindset, but I would certainly bring a copy of your invoice and a copy of the wiring instructions with you. That's obviously going to be very helpful to provide that. And secondly is if required, now this is in a, if you have a situation where, for example, the bank refused, what we can do is, and what we've done is we've, um, we've written uh, like a reference letter for the client, which states that they have an account with SWP, that they purchased from us and that we're a legitimate company. And we sign that obviously, and we provide that to the client. So in some cases, that's the extra little piece of paper that the person at the branch they just need to tick that box to say, okay, I'll cover my ass. I'm not going to get in trouble here if it escalates. But, you know, we've done that only on demand. It's not something that we write for every transaction. Obviously, that's not efficient, but uh, it is available if people are stuck. And we also get on the phone with the bank sometimes. You know, we have the client hand the phone to the bank and we'll speak to the bank and, you know, basically try to work through the, the, the jam with them to let them release the funds. Yeah. So in your experience with clients, eventually they managed to get the money to you. But the, but the horror stories that I'm hearing from clients is that the banks are saying no. And these are big banks, Royal Bank, and it seems to be branch dependent. But these are the big five banks that are refusing, flat out refusing some of my clients to do uh, a transfer to you. Um, and so this isn't, uh, it seems to be, becoming more common. And I'm just very concerned that there will be, uh, this is going to escalate. So yeah, I mean, it's concerning for us as well. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we're in the same camp. Uh, we, we, we would love for every single one of our clients to be able to walk into the ranch or even do it from home and not have to, to worry about any of this. But you know, again, I can't defend the banks. This is their own doing. This is how they behave. This is how they treat their clients. And it's really unfortunate. All that we can do is tell you that it is completely legitimate that what you're buying is well within your rights it's you're not buying anything illegal it's it's not even cryptocurrency so you know i saw someone pop in the chat if it was about crypto i mean no you're buying gold and silver so right yeah. um, now with central bank digital currencies and digital identities rolling out is is this in the cards with your company that there'll be any requirement for central bank digital currency or digital identity 
what's your position? What's the company's position on both of these things? No, I mean, there's no requirement from us. So I don't, I don't have, I won't really comment on it any beyond that, but there's no, there's no requirements of, of that nature in place right now uh, in order to be able to transact with uh, SWP. Okay. And, I, and as I mentioned earlier, I know people get concerned about wiring anything over $10,000 because we've all been taught to be scared of the $10,000 threshold. Well, there are, there's a lot of flow of money every day around the world, and it's not going to be $100,000 or a million dollars that's going to be an issue. Um, so you don't have to be worried about the amounts either, because I know some people get anxious about the amounts. And that's as long as you're you're purchasing something legitimately and it's it's nothing illegal, you have absolutely nothing to worry about wiring a few hundred thousand dollars across borders. That happens mm-hmm. all the time. So, yeah. yeah. So there's there's you're not anticipating though any requirement for your company to authorize us through any sort of advanced digital identity or because this is something that the TD is rolling out right now that they're going to be cutting you off your um, online banking. They're going to be cutting you off the use of bank cards. So that is the fear, is that at, at some point, will that be a requirement? Not on our end. We're just a business like everybody else. You know, we just, we, we use banks to send and receive money. We're, we're, you know, we're reliant like every other business in the world on the banking system, whether we think it's perfect or imperfect or however it changes. Um, you know, we will always try to make the best decision for our clients and for the business. And but at the end of the day, we don't we don't dictate the rules, you know. So uh, yeah. you know, all we can do is try to abide by them as best we can. Yeah. But it, it's you can really see it's becoming tricky. I mean, I had one client who had to it was a large sum of money they were trying to get to from the Royal Bank. The Royal Bank flat out refused to send it, do any wire transfer. So they actually requested a bank draft mm-hmm. and uh, correlated a bank draft. Yes. Now that is absolutely alarming that the client needed to resort to that last i mean that that's that's <laughs> it, it, it's so it seems so risky and yet they had no other choice um are you seeing that with other clients that they're having to I, I know exactly which transaction you're talking about mm-hmm. and that was really the last resort because the client really wanted to to transact and and we said they said well what else can we do and we said well they said can we do this draft and have it carried across border to the bank to the branch at signature, and and that's exactly what they did. And yes, we've had clients do that. Mm. Um, so you do have the option of doing that. I will also mention that there are a few, and I think some people have hinted at it. Some of the Canadian banks now have what they call cross-border accounts. I know RBC just made a major push on this because I received the the marketing email myself saying like you can open this cross-border U.S. account, which basically is a U.S. bank account that is managed by a Canadian bank, but effectively it's as if you had U.S. dollars in the United States already. So wiring money from a U.S. account to a U.S. bank um, is is one way of uh, of simplifying things. And all, it seems all the Canadian banks are doing these cross-border accounts now. So that might be something that could help people out. Is that, uh, is that the same as domicile accounts? People having U.S. domicile accounts? Yeah, so I believe I again I'm not a banker and I don't want to give the give the incorrect definition, but I, so it's like it would be RBC, for example, a Canadian financial institution, but you have a US dollar account, and when the money is flowing to a US institution, mm-hmm. um, it's just a very simple path, and uh, you don't have any exchange rates already prepaid mm-hmm. and everything. So mm-hmm. 
Again, uh, I, 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 I'd recommend people go read about it themselves. I, I definitely advise my clients to use U.S. bank accounts. I say first, shift your money from your Canadian bank account to the U.S. account. Get the best exchange rate that you can. Ask for the preferred rate uh, because, of course, they're not going to offer it to you unless you ask. And that's where Knightsbridge sometimes comes in because they're so competitive. You quote their rate in your negotiating and ask them to honor it. If they won't, if they won't meet that, well then maybe take the bridge, take the business to Knightsbridge. But uh, anyways, once the money gets into the US bank account, your US bank account, um, then you're sailing. Because to do a, a wire transfer from one US bank to another is, is quite straightforward. But, um, and, and there is a degree of separation, which I think is important because when you have funds moving from a Canadian account to you, uh, I think it's a lot easier for the Canadian government to track that movement with with FinTrack, right? Possibly. I don't know. I'm uh, I'm not an expert in, on what's being tracked or not. No, I can mm -hmm. only speculate like everyone else. You can only speculate that they are yeah. tracking. Um, they say anything in excess of 10,000, but I wouldn't be surprised if the, the threshold were even lower. Uh, so... Uh, someone has asked about WISE. I'm not familiar with the WISE, but do you have any uh, experience with WISE? Is that an institution that you like or trust? I'm trying to think WISE. I know we've been asked about what. Yeah, certainly. I, I'm, I'm fairly confident that we do receive uh, payments from WISE. Uh, the only, I would say, so if you are using WISE, I would just say maybe you want to do a test. You can always do that, right? You can always send us, you know, $50, $100, make sure it arrives. The only thing with WISE that I would caution, I believe those transfers can take a few business days. I'm just going off memory, but I do think that by the, you, you might instigate it on a Monday and the funds will clear on like a Friday. So there's a longer period, but that's fine. It's, it's not an issue so much for us, but you may want to do a test first with WISE and uh, make sure once it's the test is, is passed, then it's a lot, you know, everybody has a peace of mind of sending, sending yeah. the, the entire amount afterwards. Right. Okay, I get asked this a lot, and I'm just going to throw this out. What if I can't travel, I'm prohibited from traveling, or all communications go down, or there's some sort of cyber attack? How can I access my precious metals or get the funds in, in any form? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, the, so I read the question and I've heard it before, trust me, in my career. Um, but if you couldn't travel and you couldn't communicate at all, then there's not much you can do about anything in your life. Uh, but so what would happen is the metals would sit safely in a vault until communications were reestablished or you're able to travel again. I think the closest scenario to that actually happening was COVID. Um, people were not able to travel. Uh, items were not able to be shipped. In some cases, you know, FedEx wasn't delivering. They were only delivering essential items in many countries for an extended period of time. I think that's the closest real life scenario that any of us have lived through. Um, but the, the good news is, is that the metals are always safely in a vault. So worst case scenario, they're sitting behind a very, very large door and uh, securely uh, sitting on the shelf, not, not moving. And that's something to remember. Um, but in terms of your ability to sell, if, for example, one means of communication is, is not available to you, say the internet, you can still pick up the phone and call us. You can always write us a letter. Uh, there are always ways to communicate with us if you had to. And if you were able to travel, you could come see us in person. And you can always buy and sell by whatever means of communication are available to you, assuming that at least one is available to you. Um, 
I mean, it, there's no magic bullet. There's no, uh, the, you know, there is it without the internet, we're all at a loss to, to communicate, I guess, uh, the way we are right now, but, uh, you can always pick up the phone or, or even write a letter. We have clients, believe it or not, that still write us letters and provide us instructions that way and send us information by letters. Um, but yeah, it, it, if the entire world stops working, all that I can tell you is until it gets back online, your gold and silver are behind very safe doors being kept safe. That's, mm-hmm. that's all I can tell you. Yeah. Uh, another question I get from clients is they say, well, what if governments want to confiscate your gold, which has happened historically. So uh, is say the Canadian government really goes rogue and, and is trying to confiscate your precious metals, um, but they're not held within Canada. Could you ever foresee that there could be an issue? I'd be extremely uh, difficult for the Canadian government or any government for that matter to confiscate assets that are stored in another country because they would be breaking some pretty serious international laws. I mean, this is what protects, you know, people from or countries from being uh, raped and pillaged effectively by, by larger countries. So the Cayman Islands is an, now we'll use Cayman, we offer storage in other places, but Cayman is an example. Cayman is a British overseas protectorate. So if Canada said, oh, we're going to kick down the doors in Cayman, we're going to send a group of people down there to steal assets that belong to Canadians in Cayman, they'd be in breach of international law and basically at uh, confronting England in that case. But what really, how this really works in reality, how countries do this, is that they send, they, they collaborate on like a court order. So there's a court in Cayman, the Grand Court, which is like our Supreme Court, which is the only body in the Cayman Islands that can issue an order for assets to be seized, or more importantly, in, sorry, more commonly for information to be shared. So generally what happens is when someone does something, commits a crime in the United States, for example, the U.S. courts will apply to the Grand Court in Cayman to, uh, for a request for information. The Grand Court would then have a subpoena sent to the business or the bank, in a lot of cases, to provide information about that account. So they're not seizing the asset necessarily. They're asking for information about the bank account, about the account holder. What do they have at the bank? What are they holding in the vault? It's happened once in the nine years that we're operational, only one request. And it turns out that the person that they were asking about was actually a pedophile. Um, he had passed our initial due diligence, but later had committed a crime. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't uh, learn of it until we received the subpoena and we scrubbed them again. And that's when we realized what this person had done. Um, But it's not a common occurrence. And uh, like I said, kicking down doors in foreign countries is not something that you see unless there's a war. That's that's when that type of theft is going to occur. And uh, Cayman has no history of war. It's a neutral country. Uh, You'd be going to war with the United Kingdom, which is an ally. It's a Commonwealth country. It's part of, you know, the strongest alliance in the world. So it's, it's not a, not a very likely scenario here. Well, I guess the fact that the accounts are set up under numbers is rather helpful as that as well. Right. So there is some anonymity or some major privacy. uh, So, yeah. So, I think the most important thing, Marianne, for for clients is to know that their information is not shared with anyone. So we do not share 
your information with any governments, either the Cayman Islands government or any foreign government. So the only way that legally we're allowed to do that under Cayman law is if we re receive the request from the Grand Court, a subpoena for information. Without that subpoena, it's actually illegal for us to provide any information. That's one of the beauties of, of the Cayman Islands. Um, and so, yeah, we don't share that information with anyone. But we do have, obviously, your, your name, your address, all the things that we collect to, you know, to open your account. We do have that on file for our clients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> what is, uh, what's the latest on the Cayman duty on gold imports? There was a 4% that they were trying to impose and your company was battling with the government. What's the latest? Uh, still battling. Uh, interesting development. The minister uh, who had uh, who was responsible for the tariff actually was resigned from government over the last few weeks here. Um, so that is uh, good news, I would say overall. It doesn't mean that the tariff will be reversed. Uh, it's obviously being taken over by another minister. But we are fighting them on two fronts. One is a judicial review. So we, it's um, a means by which you can uh, question a legal decision made by the government. And we've hired uh, two attorneys uh, here in Cayman who are very experienced working with government to lead the judicial review. And basically our angle is, is that they're taxing money, which is illegal under uh, United Kingdom law. So we're going to make an argument that the, the the laws of their parent country, the United Kingdom, are being are being broken by their decision. And that's not to say that all gold products will be free of tariff, but uh, certainly uh, gold coins that have a, a monetary value, a face value. That's really the angle. That's one angle that we're pursuing. And the other angle that we're pursuing, I can't disclose to the public yet, but it should allow us to begin importing gold tariff free uh, sometime this fall. Um, there is a, um, a type of company that you can set up in the Cayman Islands that allows you to import into the country without tariff, uh, which we are in the process of, uh, of setting up and, and, and exploring uh, as well. So trust me when I say we are not giving up. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, if you do have uh, interest in buying gold in Cayman, there is some gold available. We do buy back gold from clients inside the vault and we can then resell it without the tariff. And we've been filling as many orders as we can that way, but lots of silver uh, for any silver investors in Cayman. And, and we've been selling a lot of gold in, sorry, in Singapore and Zurich and uh, Texas and Calgary lately uh, for, for other clients. Yeah. So in this situation, if you have um, exhausted your supply of duty-free gold available in, in the Caymans, could one buy gold in your, um, say, Texas, um, location and then have it shifted over to their vault in the Caymans. So you make the purchase yes. outside. Uh, you know, so the tariff is, uh, the products are subject to tariff when they arrive in Cayman. So even if you bought it in Texas and had it delivered, you'd still be subject to the tariff. It, it's at customs and duties. That's when it occurs. Um, so what, what a lot of our clients have been doing, if they're really keen on storing gold in the Cayman Islands and they know that eventually this tariff will, you know, likely be changed they've been buying gold in storing it in texas or toronto and and they can always move the gold later at a later date um for those people who are not that patient and 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 are seeking an offshore jurisdiction now uh they we've been selling a lot of gold in zurich and singapore uh, which are two very good jurisdictions as well 
uh, places that we, we, we offer storage and that we sell a lot of. So um, those are options for people that are looking for alternatives. <clears throat> and of course, Calgary and Toronto, if you want to keep it closer to home in Canada. So where are your wealthiest clients vaulting their precious metals? Yeah, Cayman, I mean, even with the tariff, obviously, we have a lot of wealthy clients in Cayman uh, that were lucky enough, I guess you could say, to get it here before the government uh, imposed the tariff. But the the other hotspots, and I mentioned, are Zurich, Singapore, Texas, for Americans that want to keep it in the U.S., and Calgary uh, would be in, in Canada. We've seen good pickup, thanks to you and thanks to some of the people on this call, I believe, started using our, our Calgary vault. Um, and that's been good for Western Canadians as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, if I'm looking at vaults around the world, um, Switzerland, I think Zurich has the same reputation uh, as the Caymans in terms of privacy, etc. But you obviously like the Caymans. That's that's where the mother vault is for your company. It's the vault that you actually own, whereas you contract out the vaulting with other companies and other jurisdictions, right? Correct. Yeah. So what? So in your mind, with the instability around the world right now, do you think that there are some jurisdictions to vault that are more secure than others? Well, security is uh, is part of it. Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, I think that you you have there's a network of vaults that exist in the world, and generally those places where those vaults exist are there for one of two reasons. Either it's a major financial hub like New York or London, where different assets are traded on a regular basis, and therefore there's a, a vault needed to, to house those assets, whether it be gold or, 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 or paper you know, uh, products. Now, a lot of this is obviously done digitally, but that's the reason where, why those vaults are originally in those places. You know, to back, for example, the COMEX or the you know, uh, London Bullion Market Association's holdings, um, or it's a strategic location like Cayman, Zurich, Singapore. Those are more. Well, Singapore is a little bit of both, but those are those are strategic locations based on security, based on the history of the country, based on the laws, and so on. Um, so I think if you look at our network, we're pretty much in tune with the strategic locations. We don't offer New York. We don't offer London. We don't offer Frankfurt because we're not, our company is not a bank. We're not trying to tie into the financial community. We're really trying to offer strategic locations. So I think we do a good job of covering those bases. We haven't announced any new locations. We're always open to ideas, but there has to be significant demand. Um, you know, people have asked us about Uruguay, for example, and it's an interesting place for a lot of reasons, but there's not enough liquidity and demand to to really make that work and then you have corruption in latin america and you have all kinds of issues you have to deal with to get gold and silver there in and out so i think we do a good job uh, the only announcement really marianne i know you had asked about new locations is that we discontinued Liechtenstein recently for some of the reasons we spoke about they were asking for too much private information about our clients uh, for example, pay stubs of our clients which we said is absolutely ridiculous there's no way we're going to ask our clients to provide pay stubs as proof of their, their employment. Um, so we, we've decided to discontinue that location um, and won't be offering anymore. Yeah. Mm. So what about Panama? There was a, a little bit of talk that you might launch into uh, or establish a partner in Panama. What's the latest on that? Yeah, I, I, I said, I think on the last call, I know the gentleman who runs the vault. I'm very aware of the vault in Panama. We've known them, that group of people for about a decade. 
the issue that I have with Panama is from a cost perspective and from an insurance perspective, there's a disadvantage to that country because the people that write the insurance certificates at Lloyd's of London view Panama as a second world country. Whether it be true or not, I, it's not my place to debate that, but they see it as a second world country. Therefore, they write the insurance premiums accordingly. It's more expensive for us to do business there with that partner vault. And we did, do not see a clear advantage in the jurisdiction as a strategic jurisdiction. We, we can't identify any particular reason why Panama is a better place than Cayman or Zurich or Singapore. There's no clear distinction in our minds, but you know, if this 4% tariff keeps up forever, that might, 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 might change our thinking a little bit, but we're still confident, you know, in our ability to reverse this. And if I had to choose between Cayman and Panama, from what I know, I would choose Cayman mm -hmm. over Panama personally. Yeah. I agree. Absolutely. Uh, one question I get a lot uh, is the gap between prices. Um, people will see the spot price, and then there's your price. Now, your price is competitive. I've looked at some of the, the other players, and your price is always seen in, in, you know, in good form. But what? how can I explain to clients, what, what is that gap between the spot price and your price on purchases? Yeah, it's, it's known as a premium. Um, it is where everyone in the supply chain from the, from the mint to the retailer who is selling you the products is making their living. So for example, if uh, the difference between the spot price of silver and the, the, the cost to buy a silver maple leaf today, let's just say it's five US dollars and premiums are high right now, you'll notice. There's times when that premium can become much smaller when demand is lower, but right now we find ourselves in a position where demand is very high for precious metals, so the premiums are high. Um, that, that $5 is where the mint, the shipping company, the wholesaler and the retailer all earn their living. So without that premium, unfortunately, the market doesn't exist. So your goal as an investor is to try to acquire products that have the lowest premiums possible in general. Uh, general guideline, there's a little bit more nuance that goes into that, but uh, you certainly don't want to be overpaying for premium. It's like going to your currency exchange company and paying or going to the bank and exchanging your dollars and paying 4% versus the exchange company that you're going to get it at 3%. It's the same logic. You want to lower that cost. And uh, basically that's, that's what a premium is. That's how we operate our businesses based on a small spread there. Right. Um, and the same applies, I guess, on the sale or, or is the spread narrower on a sale? Generally narrower on the sale um, for a few reasons, but generally it is narrower. And I tell people when they say, what can I expect to get when I sell? I always say my, my, my canned answer is you can expect to get plus or minus 1% above or below spot, depending on the product that you own and depending on the market conditions. Hmm. Um, now, let me just, uh, I know I'm sure you get this all the time and you always, what can you say? What's your prediction on gold? Uh, you know, sometimes that's a hard question. Uh, there are times when the market conditions are not very favorable for gold and, and you can kind of try to come up with ways to, uh, to remain optimistic. But I think, you know, look, it, it's, you, it doesn't, you don't need to have a very long memory to realize why owning precious metals is important. Uh, COVID was one very good example when 
the world was thrown into kind of a financial turmoil based on government's actions. You know, that wasn't a that wasn't a investor created situation. That was a government created situation, which you know led to a lot of people losing money in the stock market initially. Gold went on a big run, act as a hedge. Uh, it had a it had a good run during that time. It did cool off, you know, as COVID calmed down. But it was a very good example of actions of government and and what it does to the gold price, what it does to your your investment portfolio in general. But more recently, is the banking situation. Like you, if you look back over the last month, and you start to see dominoes falling, interest rates rising, banks starting to go, and gold price soaring, and you go, okay, this is a clear example of why I should have some of my assets in precious metals because. When the banks go and the stock market has not been performing well at all um, until recently, crypto wasn't performing very well at all either. But you see the upside of precious metals in these very sticky situations that we seem to find ourselves in more and more often now. So, um, you know, between the financial crisis of 08 and today, that's a 15 year window. And you've had some pretty major bull runs or pretty major arguments to be made for owning precious metals. And that's not. A commodity that you should own to make money, we tell people, but it's a commodity you should own to protect your money. And, and uh, you know, um, I think it's proven that. And so my prediction for gold is that you've got, a, uh, you've got central banks that are in an extremely tough situation because they're trying to raise interest rates to reduce inflation. They're trying not to break the banking system, on the other hand. And how do they do that? I don't think they've quite got that figured out. They're walking like a tightrope right now. And uh, it's not going to take much more to uh, to knock them off their stride. And so I think, you know, my outlook for gold for the next year would probably be anywhere between roughly where we are now, you know, 1900, 1950 to about 2200, 2250 US. That's without a cataclysmic, you know, global event, black swan type of thing that could make it higher than that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What What would the black swan event be triggered by in your mind? A complete collapse of the banks led by Deutsch or <laughs> well that would be that would be very I mean I don't think Deutsch can fail because half of Europe runs on Deutsch. I mean they're tied in so deep. In Germany is a major economy. They, you know, Deutsch is very well um, ingrained in, in the German economy. And I I think it's too big to fail in that sense. But uh, they could certainly see smaller banks failing. Uh, that's one thing that we could see. Um, I think there's going to be continued inflation, which is generally positive for gold over, over the longer term. Um, but a black swan event, yeah, I mean, that's the thing you don't know. You know, you don't, you just don't know, right? So I, I can't, I can only speculate, but I'll leave that up to the newsletter writers. They can write better articles than I can about what's going to go wrong. Well, on and on that topic, um, for those clients that do want to automatically receive alerts and newsletters yes. from SWP, how does one go about getting these alerts? Yes. You know, it's funny. I, uh, I remember a time when you could just go on our website and sign up for a newsletter. And I actually realized before the call when you asked that question that that's not there anymore. And I was like, why is that not there anymore? So uh, I asked my IT guy, but um, you can... Simple thing, if you want to get our newsletters, uh, when you open your account, you can ask for it on your application. If you already have an account, just email info at swpcayman.com and ask. Just say, please put me on the newsletter and we'll uh, we'll get you added to it. Okay, because I think uh, at times like this, I really <clears throat> feel as those, uh, those alerts, the more you can send out, the better. 
I would much rather hear from you that Signature Bank went under and you had extracted yourself from dealings with them, you know, the day of or the day before. Um, so I don't panic and read it in the paper. So I think that correspondence uh, proactively with us is fantastic. So I would encourage you to write as many alerts as you see fit, because it's there's no better place to get your news than from the source. Agreed. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, well, we do. You do have to sign up in order for us to be allowed legally to send you things. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can't just email you because you're a client. You have to actually you have to uh, allow us the right to send it to you. But we will be publishing our quarterly newsletter actually uh, within a week or two. Um, and uh, obviously, we're always open to calls like this uh, to share. But uh, yeah, I appreciate the feedback and we'll try to keep everybody posted the best we can. Well, Mark Yaxley, this has been a brilliant time together. We really appreciate you fielding my questions. Uh, There are some other questions that have popped up in the comments. Do you have time to field any or? uh, I've got all of about three minutes left before I have to run, but um, I can field one or two. Okay. Uh, Let me just, I'm going to unmute you, I think. Let's see. Uh, I'm, now I'm just looking to see how I am. You maybe just write uh, something quickly in the comments. I'm trying to. Can anyone speak, or are you all muted? I think you can unmute yourself, right? You can. Okay. Yes. Jump, jump in. Anyone have a question? I think there was a question about reporting requirements for SWP to the Canadian government. Maybe Mark can answer that one. Yeah, sure, Brian. We, so yeah, to be clear, I know that came up actually on our sales call this, this morning. <clears throat> um, so it's a good question. So we don't have any reporting requirements. There's no, we're not a financial institution. We're classified as an active non-financial institution. So we don't have, we don't submit any type of form or slip to the Canadian government, but uh, I would advise you as Canadians, uh, if you are holding over $100,000 of property outside of Canada, I would advise you to seek, and that can include gold, uh, you, you should seek uh, counsel with your uh, tax uh, accountant um, to see what forms you may have to fill out and if gold is included. Uh, but I would leave that to the professionals to answer your question there. Thanks, Mark. Kristen, go ahead. Thanks, Marianne. Um, thanks, Mark. I'm wondering about uh, the ability to open accounts in an LLC name or an IBC name rather than in personal. We're sort of busy building a structure here. Um, sure. Is that something that's possible with SWP? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we. Uh, I don't think we've ever come across a entity that we couldn't open an account for. Okay. And so the LLC, I know for sure, would fall under a business account. So we have basically three main groups. We have individual, business, and trust. So you would uh, you could file that under or open that under a business account, individual business or trust. Okay, yeah. so if okay, that's perfect because we're looking at uh, the LLC is being opened in one country. We've got another jurisdiction opening the trust, so okay. I can actually hold the account in either of those and just layer it. That's fantastic. You could yes okay. yeah yeah. So much. appreciate it. No well, Mark. I really, again, thank you for your, uh, your time today. It's been very enlightening. And well, you're welcome. 
Uh, it's always yeah. a pleasure to actually see people that uh, we deal with. We we do enjoy that. I wish it was under dif- different circumstances and we weren't spending an hour talking about banks, but uh, I get it. <laughs> it's important. So. Exactly. Well, we'll let you go. Thank you again. And uh, may the, yeah, the coming days be a little less <laughs> volatile than we've seen the last week or two. Okay. So Wonderful. thank you. Thank you. Okay, we'll sign up with you, Mark, but we will keep going with the call. But um, thanks again, Mark. Just feel free to bow out. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Should I? Okay. So that was really interesting. And uh, thank you for joining us. Now, I could cut the recording now and then field questions, or do you think I should keep recording it's really up to you people because um, if I'm recording, then you will be uh, part of that. Any opinions here? I think I'll cut the recording. Okay, I'll cut it and then we'll keep talking.